This is Speaking of the Arts, Mid-Missouri's only in-depth weekly art show, recorded in the heart of the Midwest, Columbia, Missouri, and broadcast each Thursday evening from 7 till 8 on 89.5 FM, KOPN Columbia. My name is Diana Moxon. This week, we are off around the state again to check in with the Missouri Arts Council's featured February artists. We have a filmmaker in St. Louis, a mural and watercolour artist in Houstonia, and an abstract painter inspired by nature in Kansas City. And with that, let's head off to St. Louis. Many documentary filmmakers spend years trailing their subjects, amassing footage and collecting history to document and craft their narrative for their film. But that was a luxury that St. Louis-based filmmaker Joseph Paleo did not have. In 2018, he started work on a film about St. Louis's Italian neighbourhood, The Hill. But with many of the members of the neighbourhood's pre-war and war years held by residents now in their 90s, time was of the essence. So within just five days of the idea being pitched to Joseph by Rio Vitale, the film's executive producer and the author of a book called St. Louis's The Hill, the pair were filming interviews. The resulting documentary, America's Last Little Italy, The Hill, has been shown on PBS stations across the country, receiving multiple film festivals awards and was also nominated for two Mid-America Emmy Awards. Joseph Paleo, how lovely to get to chat with you this evening. Thank you for having me. So this is not really a spoiler alert, but the need for you to get the Hill Project underway as fast as possible is confirmed by the postscript at the end of the film, which is a tribute to 10 of the interviewees in the film who had died since you wrapped the filming. This has to be an incredibly emotional project for you. How did your interviewees' frailness factor into your storyboard planning for this documentary? It was a huge part of us uh, starting the film initially. Um, as you mentioned, Rio Vitali, our executive producer, in that initial pitch was telling us about many of the members of the community that had already passed away. And so we knew that going in that it was important for us to get the interviews really as quickly as possible. And we tried to put the film together in a fast fashion but it ended up taking us about two years. And some of the interviewees uh, in the film didn't get to end up seeing the final film. So that was, that was a, a tough part for us because, you know, we were doing it for the neighborhood. But to have the, the film live on and to be able to capture those interviews for their families and Italians in general and, and to be able to have these stories on film you know, many times people have come up to me that they're buying multiple DVDs that they want to give to the younger members of their family to understand where their Italian ancestors came from. And it's not just specific to the Hill. This is Italians everywhere. This is a neighborhood that, that they can be proud of. But also, the film wasn't made strictly for Italians. Uh, you know, we think that this story of, of perseverance with this neighborhood can cross all ethnicities and, and really be something that, that anybody could watch and take something from it. Did that change while you were making it? Did you go into it thinking about the audience and the audience changed as you made it? So we always went into the film 
knowing that we wanted to make we wanted to make a documentary for a national audience. So that was going to mean taking out some parts that members of the Hill would probably see as blasphemous that we weren't talking about certain things. But we had to always keep in mind that the audience was not going to have the same connection that people who lived on the Hill for their entire life were going to have. You know, there's a lot of people that didn't even know that this neighborhood existed. And so trying to teach everyone about the the fact that the neighborhood exists and, and really what I was most interested in was how is the hill different from other Little Italy neighborhoods and why does the hill still exist where so many others have gone under? And that was really the focus that I wanted to have on the film as opposed to some things that, you know, hill lifers would want you to be more focused on. That that really wasn't something that we were that interested in. And so there was some comments as as there's always going to be when you when you're doing a film that's encompassing 120, 130 years and you have about an hour to tell that story, you know, some things are gonna have to hit the cutting room floor, obviously. And we wanted to focus on what we thought was gonna put together the strongest film for a national audience. You cover a lot of components of life in the film, which I'll come back to in a moment, but tell us about some of the oldest eyewitness testimonies you were able to gather. Yeah, so we started off, the first interviews that we did were all of the elderly people. So if you were over the age of like 75 or 80, we were going to interview you first. So we interviewed probably about 20 to 25 of those members of, of the community. And so I would say... 99% of the people that we interviewed had never been interviewed before. We were getting the stories probably for the first time, especially there's a portion of the film that we talk about Yogi Berra and Joe Garagiola and what they meant to the neighborhood, uh, two famous baseball players. And we actually were able to interview about five or six of their childhood friends and this was the first time that these men were ever being asked these questions. And you could really see them come to life telling these stories that they had probably told their family members hundreds of times or, or friends or you know anybody that was willing to listen that they played baseball with Yogi Berra playing recess and, and things of that nature. But now it was actually going to be on film. It was, it was going to be in this movie and, and it was going to live on forever. It was, it was something that, you know, we were just so excited and grateful that we were the ones that had the opportunity to bring the story to life. It's kind of amazing, given that there have been multiple books written about the hill, that no documentary has been done until now. Did you sense why that might have been? I was surprised uh, when when the idea initially got pitched to me. As you said, I had about five days in between the, the initial meeting that we had and filming. So I was reading these books as fast as I could and, and, and putting together an outline. But yes, we couldn't you know, really understand why no one had ever taken the time to get these interviews. But luckily for us, we had the time and were willing to do it and couldn't be happier with how everything played out with it. One of the things that's really fascinating in the film is all the old footage and photography that you spliced into the conversations. Was that a monumental task to track all that down? How did you find all that? When you're a documentarian and, and you hear, we have 
2000 photos available. And, <laughs> and the more that I got into, uh, we put out a, a request to families in the neighborhood. If they had any eight millimeter footage, please come forward. We would digitize this footage. And one of the families, actually my own family had eight millimeter. So I didn't know that this footage even existed until I went over to my relative's house and they unearthed these eight millimeter reels from the basement. Uh, And so I raced over and we started digitizing them. And it was the first time that I had ever seen moving video of my grandparents, my aunts and uncles, my father is in this, in this uh, eight millimeter and things that I didn't even know existed. I was getting to see them for the first time. So that was a really emotional time for me being able to, to see this and incorporate that film and photos into the documentary was, it was a real treat for me. Did you grow up on the hill? I didn't grow up on the hill, but I did have many relatives that lived on the hill. And so growing up, I was always visiting the hill and going to the different shops and things of that nature. But being honest, I'm an Italian American myself. So obviously I knew of the hill uh, as a place where my Italian relatives lived. But I had no idea the rich history of the neighborhood until I started working on this project. And specifically, the fact that Father Polizzi was such an instrumental part in keeping the neighborhood Italian and keeping that ethnic identity when so many of these other little Italys were going under during the 60s and 70s, I had no idea about that until I started researching in before we were going to start filming. And it was a really an eye-opening experience as to how important this neighborhood is and really just how unique it is. Uh, it was probably something that for myself, you know, growing up in St. Louis, it was something that I definitely was taking for granted. And I feel like, you know, a lot of people in the St. Louis area and beyond, if they don't know really how unique and special it is, how are they going to appreciate it the way that it should be appreciated? And so that became one of the the main focuses for us was really just building that awareness around the film as to how unique and special this neighborhood is. The film is very precisely structured. In many ways, it feels like a book with each chapter documenting a different facet of life. Prohibition, the war years, family, baseball, soccer, the church, food. But you also have a timeline engine running underneath everything that moves the story along from the earliest days to the modern era. What conversations did you have about how to tell this very complex and long story? Yeah, so the biggest thing for us was I didn't want to use a narrator in the film. I wanted to have the interviews be the narrative thread. So you would leave a certain section and then it would be picked up by another interview either using photos or video or music to make the transition. So that was something that was decided very early on. Um, it took a lot of outlining to try and make sure that we were had all of these chapters, as you say. Uh, all of them would be given the amount of time that we thought necessary to, to really hit home on that specific area. Um, And so it was difficult as when you're trying to condense 130 years into an hour, an hour 10, it's going to be extremely difficult. Things are obviously going to have to hit the cutting room floor. But that structure was what we really focused on the most. And I think from hearing 
a lot of the reviews that we got and, and just people in general reaching out to us, I think it was one of the things that people enjoyed the most was the fact that it had that building quality where each one of the sections was leading to the next section until you finally got to the end, which was present day on the hill and looking into the future as to what, what holds for this neighborhood. I was planning to ask you about that, that lack of narrator, because it's very interesting how you did that. Your narrative is all unfurled by the interviewees. But I'm curious whether that left you with any narrative gaps where you needed to cover something, but you didn't have anybody to talk about it. How did you get around that? Did you have to prompt people to talk about certain things so that you could fill in the gaps? Not really. We, we got lucky. Uh, we started putting things together as we were doing the interviews. So I would know that I had a bridge between, say, Prohibition and Shotgun Houses. And there was, chronologically, there was some things that had to be moved around to fit our narrative in terms of, like I said, those bridge sound bites that we could use to get there. But overall, a lot of the people, we were interviewing them for a specific reason. So they, they were the ones that were kind of we were hoping to get those sound bites that we needed to either open or close a section. And it just took a lot of work in the edit to make things flow together uh, naturally. But I think that uh, we were able to accomplish that with the final product. Yeah, definitely. I loved how everything pieced together. It, it seemed very masterful how you had those bridge conversations that moved from one section to another. Most of the residents on the hill hailed originally from either Lombardy in the north of Italy or Sicily in the south. And you include a section in the film about their prejudice of each other, which you know, kind of is global. <laughs> I come from the north of England and the north-south divide in England is as clear as it is in Italy. Mm -hmm. Let's take a little listen to one of those clips. Tremendous prejudice on the hill. <laughs> and and uh, there, uh, I remember the Sicilians used to get very upset when they heard someone say Vindanun, which mean, meant one of us. <laughs> There's a big difference because the people speak different dialects. And you could be living next door to somebody, you didn't know, have the foggiest idea what that person was saying. You start talking with the Sicilian dialect in a, a northern Italian would stop you. And they immediately said, what, what do, no cabiche, you know? We speak Italian here. Oh, scusi, okay. Well, I even hate to say this, but my mother hated Sicilians. I mean, she just didn't, didn't agree with the Sicilians. And it, it was just so different. I mean, I think all of them, they just, there was just something between the Lombards and the Sicilians that they couldn't get along. At one time, the Sicilians and Lombards were like uh, two animals that didn't want to get along together. And it went on a long time. Until the, the younger people got together and we were going to school together, we had no reason to fight each other. It didn't seem like they had any reticence talking about their prejudices of each other. Did you have to specifically ask about this or did it just come up spontaneously? Well, we specifically asked about that. And it's actually funny that, that we're talking about this part. I, I had heard a few people making comments about that Sicilians were portrayed in a negative light in the film or something. 
well, I'm Sicilian myself. So I, you know, I, <laughs> that, that wasn't, you know, the case whatsoever, obviously. But we asked people point blank about that discrimination. And I think one of the good things that we had working for us was we had a very small crew. So it was just myself and co-producer Steve Kerkuris. I was doing the camera, he was doing the audio, and Rio was there as well. And I was asking the questions. And so when you have a small crew like that, and, and it's, a, it's an intimate setting, and you're interviewing them for an hour, and you know, they're comfortable with you. And so those are, those are obviously some things that I, I would ask those questions towards the end of the interview where they were comfortable with us and, and more willing to give a clear and honest answer. And they're probably not thinking, you know, as guarded as, as they would be earlier on in the film, that they're going to answer these questions honestly. And, you know, this is just the truth as, as to how it was on the Hill. You know, uh, you had the Lombards were there first and the Sicilians came later and there was, there was a divide between the two of them. But as we talk about in the film, that's something that kind of died out once they all started going to school together and they all just kind of looked at themselves as Italian-Americans, whereas the people that had came over from the old country were obviously more concerned with where they came from in Italy was something that was very important to them. But when you're born in, in this country or you're very young, uh, whenever you come over, you're, you're going to look at yourself more so as an American than as an Italian or a Sicilian. So I think that was... Uh, it was a it was a moment in time. It was a historical aspect of the story, and we thought it was important to tell. So, one thing I have to ask you about is the absence in the film of any real reference to the influence of the Sicilian mafia on the life of the Hill. And whilst I understand that you want to keep the film positive, I mean it is a huge part of the history of the Hill, and kind of therefore unavoidable. It seems. What were your thoughts on that? So, it's a complicated answer because. There was mafia, you know, quote unquote, involvement in St. Louis, but that was more so downtown, whereas the hill is located, you know, about 10 to 15 minutes away from that. So the Sicilians, when they first came here from Italy, they settled and they had their own little Italy that was downtown. And so that's where a lot of this mafia involvement would have been. And there wasn't a, a ton of mafia involvement on the hill, because as we say, you know, it was a, at least two thirds Lombard on the hill. Well, the mafia is a Sicilian derived organization. It's, it's not something that the, the Northerns had anything to do with. So if the, the neighborhood was very heavily Lombard, you weren't going to see a lot of mafia type of activity going on there. That was going on downtown. And so once Little Italy downtown went under, as so many Little Italy's across America did, a lot of those Italians then moved to the hill. But at that point in time, the hill was very strong in terms of, of the pride that it had in its neighborhood, and it probably wasn't going to stand for the kind of activity that maybe would have been going on downtown. So I know, you know we hear that a lot, but when you really look at the history of, of the neighborhood, it really doesn't have as much mafia involvement as one would initially think. And so we just thought it was maybe too complicated a story to get into and one that then 
at the end of it, there's not a lot to, to even discuss there. So I think it would have been difficult to explain everything in a timely manner. And then you probably left not really that impressed with the kind of involvement that was down there on the hill. I suspect that for most people who visit the hill, it's all about food, people from outside the hill. And that's the chapter you saved to last. And I wonder, as you made this documentary before the pandemic hit, how the food culture of the hill has survived the past two years of closures and quarantines. Yeah, it's been really remarkable to see the support that everyone uh, in the St. Louis area has has given to these hill restaurants. But I mean, I thought about it often while we were doing interviews and talking about COVID and, and, and how that would have affected us trying to make the documentary. There is no way we could have gotten this documentary done during COVID or, or probably even after, like if we were to try to do it right now. So we were incredibly lucky that we were able to get these uh, interviews and finish the film before all of this happened. But Everybody was so welcoming to us. We were welcomed into their homes. They're Italian, so obviously every time we went into a house, are you hungry? Is this? Are you guys want to eat? Do you, <laughs> are you thirsty? Do you, what can I get you? We had to explain to them, okay, well, we got to get this interview done before we get into all the, the food and whatnot. But there was there was a couple of times where we you know we sat down at the table. We had a we had a ravioli meal. So you know th- those are just memories that that we'll have forever. And just being welcomed into everybody's house and really, you know, the fact that we're interviewing them in their house, they're comfortable. We wanted to make the documentary feel like you were being given access into this neighborhood, that the viewer was a part of this. And I think by going into the homes, doing the interviews there, hearing these stories, you know, we were having the time of our lives putting this film together. And it really was an incredible experience for us. And, you know, we couldn't be happier that we were able to get it completed before COVID because we we probably could have made the film, but it would have been a radically different film than the one that we were able to put forward pre-COVID. Well, America's Last Little Italy is your first documentary, and you're now working on another about St. Louis's Bosnian community. But before The Hill, and pretty much right out of film school, you made a mockumentary called Top Sum about a Tom Cruise impersonator. There was a top five finalist in comedian Kevin Hart's Eat My Shorts competition. Do you think you'll keep going back and forth between mock and doc, or have you found your life's calling in the documentary world? Well, out of film school, you know, my my focus was narrative films. My focus was comedy. That's really what I had my sights on. So if you would have told me that right out of film school that I would be making documentaries, I I probably would have looked at you funny because I didn't (laughs) I didn't have a lot of interest in that type of filmmaking. But when this idea was pitched to me, it was obviously something being an Italian American and having so many relatives from the neighborhood, I felt that you know, this was really the perfect opportunity for me to tell this story, that I, that I was the right person to tell this story. And so the stars kind of aligned in order for this project to come together. Uh, but where, where we're looking at in, in filmmaking in general, in terms of the entertainment business, it's getting harder and harder to tell independent films. Uh, to, it's, it's getting harder and harder to get those films funded, to try and go forward through that. We actually... The, the months before uh, we had this initial meeting with Rio, Top Sun, we had been working to try and make that into a feature. 
and the funding fell through right before we were about to start filming. And so this, this really came along at a perfect time where, you know, we were kind of down on our luck and, and we're really feeling it in terms of, you know, that we put so much time and effort into trying to get this top sun off the ground and make it into a feature film that then this feature film documentary came along. And we kind of learned how to make a documentary while we were doing it. Uh, myself and Steve had never, we had never made a feature film before. We had never made a documentary before. But I've watched a lot of documentaries. I, I watch Ken Burns. I watch how, how they kind of put stories together. And I thought, well, I think I can do that. And so, you know, I just had the confidence that I was the right person to tell this story. And right after The Hill, everybody kept asking, you know, what's our next documentary going to be? What are, what are we going to try and do next? And it wasn't until I got married uh, in the middle of making The Hill and we moved to Afton and I was moving in and I started noticing that all of our neighbors were foreign. And I was from St. Charles, which is about 30 minutes away from St. Louis. And so I wasn't aware of all of the Bosnians that lived in, in the South County area in St. Louis. And so I was asking my wife, what, why is everyone around here look foreign? And she said, well, that's, that's the Bosnian community. And I, so I started researching into that and talking to people, talking to our neighbors. And I started to think, okay, well, there might be something here. I think maybe this could be the next documentary. And it just so happens that this year is actually the 30th anniversary of the start of the Bosnian War. And so that was what kickstarted the need for all of these refugees to flee Bosnia with a lot of them ending up in St. Louis. And I was just really fascinated by uh, why was St. Louis chosen and how did St. Louis then grow to have the largest Bosnian community with a, an estimated 70,000 Bosnians now living in St. Louis. Um, I thought, you know, this has the makings to be a really good documentary. And so we got the funding set up through that. The, the same crew that brought you America's Last Little Italy, The Hill, is now, now going to be bringing you this Bosnian documentary. And so to me, it's very important. Um, I love St. Louis. This is my home. This is where I'm from. This is you know, something that I'm extremely proud of. And so many times, anytime you're hearing about St. Louis nationally, it's usually in a negative light. And I think that there's a lot of positives that could be told about St. Louis. And I think that, you know, obviously we started with the Hill and we think that the Hill is an incredibly positive part of St. Louis and something that should be cherished and appreciated. And I also think that this Bosnian community is an incredible part of what this city is all about. And I'm just happy that we've had the opportunity to now tell these two stories about these incredible communities that are here in St. Louis and I just hope that when people watch them now, they, they can maybe have more of a, a positive connection to the St. Louis area instead of always hearing about all the negatives that we hear about nationally. What is the timeline for the Bosnian documentary? And might you consider launching it at Columbia's True False Film Fest? So we've thought about uh, the True False Film Festival. So I started filming this Bosnian documentary last summer. So... We started filming in June, and right now we're in the post-production process, working with our editor, putting 
everything together, putting the finishing touches on it, getting the music, making sure that everything is as we, we want it. Uh, and we're hoping that the film will be completed this summer and we're probably going to premiere at the St. Louis Filmmakers Showcase, which is generally in July. And that's where The Hill also premiered. So it's Cinema St. Louis here in St. Louis. Um, you know, we, we love being a part of, of the film community here in St. Louis and getting everybody together. And we got our fingers crossed that this time we're going to get to have an in-person film festival because when we did The Hill, it was it was 100% virtual. So I still haven't seen The Hill on a theater screen. The largest I've seen it is in my home. We have about, I'd say, probably like a 50-inch television screen. So that's the <laughs> largest I've ever seen this this project. So I'd love to see the Bosnian film on a real theater screen with, with people in attendance that can be entertained but also learning at the same time. Just quickly before we close, how do people see America's Last Little Italy? I know it has been shown on some PBS stations, but I couldn't track it down in mid-Missouri. Is there another place people can go? Yes. So the film is available to rent or purchase on Amazon Prime streaming. It's also available. We have a DVD of the film that's also available on our Facebook page, which is facebook.com slash the hill doc. Or you could simply search America's Last Little Italy, The Hill, and that'll take you to the Facebook page, and you'll see there's a, a post. Uh, we have like a store that has the DVD and a few other items. We have a hat for sale. And so, yeah, those are the two places that you could go and, and get the film, and hopefully people check it out and, and enjoy it. Perfect. Well, it is a very enjoyable one hour and 10 minutes, isn't it? One hour and nine minutes. Yeah, 70 minutes. 70 minutes. It is a very enjoyable 70 minutes. Well, Joseph, thank you so much for taking time to chat today and for creating such an entertaining and informative History of the Hill. I hope to see your next work in Columbia and maybe a future work at True False. Thank you. I appreciate it. If you were at the State Fair in Sedalia back in 2013 and visited the Fine Arts Building on the Missouri State Fairgrounds, you might have noticed on the side of the building a mural paying homage to Grant Woods's famous American Gothic painting called New American Graffiti. Or maybe you've been in downtown Sedalia and noticed the Sedalia Hollywood Stars mural across from the courthouse. Well, both of these murals, plus several others around Sedalia and Houstonia, were painted by my next guest, watercolour artist and muralist Linda Hoover. Since retiring from a 17-year art teaching career, Linda is now a full-time artist, but her love of art goes back to third grade and over the intervening years has given rise to a sign painting business, a degree in art and a master's degree in art education. She is the current president of the Sedalia Visual Art Association and, my favourite thing, her art studio used to be a chicken house. Welcome to the show, Linda. Thank you so nice to be here. I think we have to start with the chicken house. I have a vision of you surrounded by fluffy chickens pecking pointillistic paintings, but I'm guessing you moved the chickens out before you moved in. Oh, long ago, long ago, and put down a cement floor and moved out a wood stove and made it workable for art. (laughs) 
You describe your art as being emotionally and visually lighthearted and that your aim is to make people smile. And indeed, your master's thesis was on exactly that, lighthearted art, which seems like it might have been a hard sell in the world of Master of Fine Art programs. Tell us a little bit about your thoughts on lighthearted art. Well, it goes two ways. It's uh, to put smiles on people's faces. And the humor has always been in art. When I researched that, I found that out. But you don't see too much about it in history books because it's hard to tell what's funny from when, uh, you know, when we look back to somebody 100 years ago, what was funny to them isn't so necessarily funny to us or in a different culture. But it's always been there. It's always been an important part of art. And that's my part. (laughs) Caricatures and my themes are lighthearted. But also, it's about just visual light, making things look like the sunlight or lamplight, that type of light. You say that you pinpoint the beginning of your art journey to a third grade talent show and a chalkboard. What made that event feel like the beginning of your life in art? Oh, that's true. That was an important thing to me. Some little friends, we had a talent show at school and my little girlfriends sang a song called The Littlest Angel. And I illustrated that on the chalkboard. And I think it put in my mind the idea that I was an artist. And I have always thought of myself as an artist since then. I was always the class artist. In sixth grade, I we had a newspaper, a class paper, and I was the art editor. And I've heard other artists tell me the same story, that they had something, some important event in their life made them start thinking of themselves as an artist. Years ago, this was, I think, just a fifth grade class, and there was a little boy who Well, actually, he was a little bit of a bully. And uh, we had a contest. It was the Martin Luther King contest, Martin Luther King Day. And he entered it, and we needed to do a picture and a thought. And he did that, and he won. And it was a real changing point in his life. I saw him years later, and he was telling me about all his plans, but the teachers thought it was a real turning point for him. We actually with his parents, went up to Jeff City, and he got to shake hands with the governor, and he got a prize, and it was an important thing in his life. And that was just a fifth grader. So I think these things are important. You have a very diverse portfolio of work. There are your fine art watercolor paintings, your indoor and outdoor murals, your caricatures, and your fine art portraits. Where are you happiest? Oh, goodness. Making art makes me happy. I guess watercolor as a medium is a first love. My mother worked in watercolors and passed that love on to me. But right now I'm working on a series of pencil, graphite drawings, small ones, and I'm just loving it. (laughs) So I guess as long as I'm making art, I'm I'm happy. Talk to me about your philosophy of portraits and what you love about painting them. You talk about heads, hands, and hearts. Expand on that a little bit for us. Okay. I do like to include hands, but also to show what those people are doing themselves, like what they are making. So paintings that I've done of artists, I've often taken little bits and pieces of their own paintings or drawings and included them in the background. But I like to 
try to capture the person. So I need to be with him if, if at all possible and sketch and, and do my own photographs and get acquainted with them. So I feel like I know something about them, but I want to reveal something about their heart, heads, hands, and hearts. I want to show something about what they love. Have you ever been asked to paint the portrait of someone who maybe you don't like terribly much or whose heart you don't feel is in the right place? I mean, is that something that you can do? Oh, I have to think <laughs> about that. Somebody I don't like. To me, most people are beautiful. But I have been asked to do somebody that I didn't actually think was beautiful. And that's hard. <laughs> So, no, I can't really relate to the not liking them part. You talk about getting to know the person and kind of painting the essence of the person. and That's part of what you're doing. And I'm curious if some people have a predominant color when you think about them or paint them, whether you're pulled towards a certain color. Well, my goodness. You know, I'd have to go back and I'm looking at one of my portraits right now and it's got a lot of yellow in it, a very sunny and that lady was very sunny. So I'm not sure that I've ever thought of that. I'd need to go back and look through them. But in that case, the one that I'm looking at, it's sure true that I was using the colors that would express her. I'm curious about your love of painting murals. Because when I think of watercolor painting, I think of works on paper with lots of detail and fine brushwork. And there you are, up a ladder or a cherry picker, painting these pretty huge works on the sides of buildings and barns. Tell me how you got into murals and what you love about them. Oh, how I got into them. Hmm. Well, I just I think it's like the, a child's dream to be able to draw and paint on the walls. And I'm trying to think where would be the first one. And it might have been actually as far back as I can think is in Houstonia and started drawing on the outsides and painting on the outsides of walls. My, I saw that big surface and thought, ooh, you know, that would be <laughs> delightful to paint something on that huge surface. Are there any painting projects still on your bucket list? Oh, lots. I want to do more like I did one at uh, an automotive body and mechanic shop, Randall's, here in Sedalia, that's huge. It's inside in their lobby. And I love that idea that I'm just doing it in a, you know, a place where everyday people come. It's kind of like that at the State Fair, too. You get all kinds of people, not just a gallery or a museum where mostly artists or art lovers will come, but just normal people. So it's like Thomas Hart Benton said he'd like to paint in a bar, I don't know about a bar, but I love the idea of doing it where people from the community go. How did you get that gig at the State Fair? That was fun. That was sort of a serendipitous thing where several artists, uh, the Sedalia Visual Artists and the Warrensburg Mid-Missouri Artists, we hosted and we uh, hang the show and and we're there as docents to watch over it. And we put on the reception. So several of us were there checking in art and we were just brainstorming and somebody said I wonder if they'd let us paint on the outside of the building and I thought Woo, wouldn't that be fun you know it's huge that's like 32 feet tall and longer than that that area and uh, so then we started brainstorming ideas and one idea was to just do something that was famous that everybody would recognize like the Mona Lisa maybe with a paintbrush in her hand. And I remember it was Madge Gressley that suggested 
American Gothic because it's a farm couple and that would be perfect for the fair. So that just started it. We got permission. It's owned by the Chicago Art Institute. And we got their permission. And I did a watercolor of what the idea was. And we went in force and went to see the director of the fair, Mark Wolf. And he said, what do we have to do to get that here at the fair? And we said, well, you have to build a full wall because we couldn't, it's siding on the side of that building. And that would be miserable to try to paint on that. So they built the wall and they hired me as the artist in residence. And that's how that got going. I, that was so much fun. It had to be completed during the fair. And I did draw it up there ahead of time with my husband's help. But all the painting was done during the fair. And did it stay up after the fair? Is it still there? Oh, yeah, it's still up. In fact, a year ago, they rented all the lifts and things for me again. Well, I guess at first I did it on a scaffolding, but this time I'm getting a little older. They rented a couple of different lifts for me and I, I freshened up parts of it that needed to be freshened up. The faces needed to be repainted on the couple and some of the color was fading a bit because it's in bright sunlight all day long, but that's not bad. It's almost 10 years and it, it was just beginning to fade. I don't think the normal audience would notice that, but, um, I could see it was starting to. And it's all fresh again. It's like new. So between the commissioned murals and the portraits you do, it keeps you pretty busy. But when you're just sitting at your easel and it's your own time, what do you love to paint? Well, right now I'm doing something. I'm just loving. I mentioned this earlier that I've been seeing trees. I didn't tell you that. I told you I was doing a pencil series, but I've been seeing trees that I just love. And want to take time to just sit down and draw that tree. So I'm doing a series and they're going to be small, maybe eight by 10 and all in pencil, in uh, drawing pencil. So it'll go from real hard graphite to real soft. So it could be like a real silvery color to a real deep black color, but all graphite. And I'm going to go around and do these. I've got a walnut tree in our backyard. I just love. And there's some maples in our front yard and then other trees I've seen around in town that and the bare bones of the trees right now with all the leaves off. I'm finding very fascinated and I'm very excited by that. So that's a little different, but that's what I'm into right now. Well, you can see the work of Linda Hoover on her website at lindahooverart.com, as well as on multiple walls around Sedalia and Houstonia. Linda, thank you so much for making time to chat today and for sharing a little bit about your art journey. Well, thank you so much. This has been so fun. I love your questions. <laughs> Kansas City-based artist Joha Bissoni paints the kind of nature-inspired abstract works that I just want to float into. Brilliant hues and fluid curves in acrylic inks and watercolor paint, layered with tiny details picked out in charcoal, pen or graphite. Sometimes a bird or a fish wander through her swirling colorscapes so that you feel like you're swimming through a kaleidoscopic and dreamlike riverscape or gazing through a tropical forest canopy of exotically hued flowers. 
Joha is a graduate of the Kansas City Art Institute and for almost two decades her works have been in solo and group shows in galleries, libraries and businesses across Kansas City. And if you want to look at her work while we are chatting, go right now to johabissone.com and that's J-O-H-A-B-I-S-O-N-E.com. And Joha, welcome to Speaking of the Arts. Yay, thank you for having me. What a brilliant and beautiful introduction. <laughs> I was like, who's that? Are you talking to me? That was really well said. Thank you. Well, your works are so floaty and colorful. And I'm wondering whether are you a floaty and colorful person in real life? Or are you a totally driven <laughs> type A person and your works are your alter ego? Ah, that's a good question. I would say a little bit of both. Um, I definitely feel really like light and yeah I guess like flowy would be go with the flow kind of thing but then uh, I can also just put my head down and just be working all the time so kind of like a balance of both of those characteristics I would say. Well nature is clearly a huge component of your work so tell me about growing up in the woods of Wisconsin and how your childhood wanderings inspire your art. Oh, man. So I will have to say first that if I didn't take a direction going into the art school, art world, I probably would have gone into school for biology. And my main kind of my main two really big inspirations are birds and fish. So growing up, though, we lived, um, it was in uh, Menominee Falls. And at the time, just nothing was developed. I mean, we had a huge backyard, really big woods. And at that time, this was like the early 80s. So parents are like, get out of my face and go play in the woods, (laughs) like go do whatever you want. And that's kind of what we did. And nowadays, it's so I feel so foreign to say that because it's not like it used to be you know, first of all. So, you know, my brothers and sisters, like we all had a great time just on our own and discovering things. And I also had a lot of like, I mean, this is indoor, but like hamsters and parakeets and, you know, pets and fish and stuff like that too while growing up. Uh, But yeah, I was just very into it and also would draw from it. Um, You know, my mom has saved drawings of birds and that when I was like six, you know, and just they were at the time still really like colorful and getting all the feathers in. And so it just it's held into me until now and probably forever. It's my main inspiration. Oh, and another thing, (laughs) ramble on, is uh, we had Lake Michigan, a favorite place to go to a kind of a getaway spot. So there'd be many times just walking the shores, picking up shells and looking at every tiny thing I could find and being mesmerized by the water. So yeah, sometimes I'm just like, wow, right now I'm living in the middle of the country. So there's no big water and no, you know, like mountains and stuff. I mean, Missouri is beautiful, you know, in its own way. But sometimes I'm like, Oh, I kind of miss miss that. Talk to me about birds. Birds seem to have a special significance in in your work. You, you love them as a child. Yeah, I don't even know. I don't even know how. I've I've asked myself this so many times. Like, what is it? And and another thing to be even more specific, I have this thing with birds of prey. If I'm in a room with them, like I try to go uh, to any events that that have birds of prey, and I get like goosebumps my eyes water like I'm about to cry and I have no control over it I don't know what it means I don't know and so when I'm talking about like oh if I was a going to a biology major or something like that like I would I mean it'd probably be a hard choice to be like fish or birds I probably <laughs> would go into birds or 
or even another tangent on like falconry and you know stuff like that is just like oh it's amazing so I don't really have the exact reason they just are so magnificent you know and just they're see I'm getting all tingly now just think about them (laughs) it's just so it's just really interesting but I mean they aren't they aren't birds of prey in your work they're much cuter little chaffinches or red-winged blackbirds or whatever right exactly so I have a few in my sketchbooks like just even doing drawing like talons and do these big claws or whatever like stuff like that that I'm like I have ideas for certain pieces like that but I feel like too oh no I can't mess with the birds prey they're in they're in there coming out into the work somehow but but you're right, you know, using smaller birds as inspiration on some of these paintings I have more recently, but the birds of prey themselves, I'm like, oh, yeah, I haven't uh, literally, you know, used them. I read somewhere that excitement is really key for you in your work. And if you don't feel a zing in a work, then everything has to change. Talk to me about what that zing is. What are you looking for in your work? Ooh, that's a great question. Um, so it's a certain feeling I guess this zing was the best kind of word I could think of for just like a ooh or a zap hits the core kind of uh feeling is it in the colors or in the swirl or where is the zing I think it's all I know this sounds kind of silly but I feel it all of that as one so it's like the certain color meeting up with you know after this color goes down maybe a different like a layer of a different color and it's like, whoa, I, you know, I thought I know what that would look like in the end, but oh, it has this other kind of <laughs> pizzazz to it or, you know, and then I'm like, wow, that's exciting. And then I think I'm going to, maybe I'm going to draw with this, you know, pastel and that might complement this wash that was put down. And so it's like this, uh, let's see, kind of like a, a wheel moving that's all going together at once. And it's just like, yeah, it's working. And then sometimes, you know, nothing ever is great off the bat. It's like, well, some things have to be worked out and like put aside. I have that a lot too, where it's just like, I'm going to set a piece down and let it breathe. And I'm not going to, you know, look at it for a minute. I'm not going to ignore it. Cause I, I don't like that either. Where I'm like, oh, I put a lot of time into this and let's see, it's a problem. It's a challenge to try to figure it out. And that, that's another thing I like to use, like figuring out where was I going with this or what, what was I doing? I need to give this a breather. And so, you know, set that one inside and then have another piece going. I mean, there's always at least three things going at the same time. Oh, another thing is I turn my work a lot while I'm working on it. And sometimes I, I, when I'm like, all right, I think this is done. Then, you know, I'm like, wait, I liked it. I was really working on it this one way. Okay, I'm going to flip it upside down. And then I look at it, I'm like, wow, there could be so many other things going on in this. So I'm always flipping the work too. So it's always moving that way. So it can be helpful at times. And I'm like, oh, this, maybe this little corner needs some extra attention or colors to come through here. There was a, an idea a long time ago, which I've never done yet, but I, I, I still want to do this in my lifetime is have a giant painting that would have a motor on the back of it where it would be constantly slowly moving. I have some pieces right now that are They're small, but they're on a circular 12 by 12 piece of birch wood or whatever. But it's like, wow, if I had something really gigantic, slowly turning, um, I find that really interesting too. So that's something I I never fully have yet delved into because, you know, I'm like, okay, then I need something to, you know, a little motorized thing to make this move with the piece. Um, A lot of them have like this movement in them, Mm. which I don't really... 
plan, when I started Peace, it's that movement or kind of gesture throughout, that's never the intention right away. It just ends up always coming through. Do you start in the middle of a piece of paper or canvas or do you start at the edge? Well, well, another good question. It's sometimes it's just kind of depending on if I throw a bunch of paint down. I don't throw, <laughs> throw a bunch of paint around getting crazy. Well, that's fun too. Uh, but if I was to um, do kind of like a, a wet on wet method where you get your paper wet and then using like the acrylic ink, which I've been using a lot more recently. It was mostly watercolor before, but just letting the color kind of saturate and see where it goes and then say like, oh, wow, I really like this little area. So sometimes that could be on the side of the page. So I guess every time is different. It's I never start right in the middle. And I feel like a lot of artists, too, when they're staring at a blank piece of paper, it's like the scariest thing in the world. <laughs> and so that's so daunting. I'm like, oh, my gosh. Eh. So I try to get at least like one or two colors down right away. Do you find it easy to to sell your work or are they very personal and it's hard to let go of them? Sometimes it's hard to let go of a piece um, because of I've discovered something new in this one. And I want to like work on that a little more and have it physically with me. But sometimes it's like if, if there is an opportunity where a piece could live with someone else and I'm like okay well that's that's fun too you know but sometimes it is really hard to uh, let it go especially if it's something I just finished or off to a show or I'm in that the uh, arts KC the now showing program so that is having your work in office buildings and it's quite exciting to me because I go into buildings in Kansas City that I've never would ever be in (laughs) or you know like these financial institutions where I'm like where am I? And then I'm hanging my artwork in these offices. And uh, it's been a fun experience. And then that's three months at a time. And then, you know, once I get the work back, I'm like reunited with some pieces that I'm like, oh, I just, I just finished this, you know. Do you feel like you need to go back and do some more? Like, oh, I missed a bit of blue in that corner would be great. Do you want to go back in and touch them again? Or do you not let yourself do that? I I don't. (laughs) That's also another really good question. I don't because that could go on forever. I think, I think too, like that I have some pieces where I feel like I'm crazy, like where I'm like, that's weird. Or like, there's so many little details of something. And like, what were you thinking? And then that's when I'm like, Oh, I was thinking too too much where I should be letting that piece of paper go, you know, and not no more. I mean, I should just let myself have one piece of paper where I just <laughs> never stop. Just it's difficult going. to know when to stop. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I'm like, I think sometimes I, you know, and I think every artist has that where it's just like, oh, am I done? Or what am I doing? And um, I've learned to just, when you think of it almost being done, just set it down and once again, let it breathe, let it sit there. And then that's usually where I'm like, okay, I feel like this is done. I'm not going to keep working on it. Well, you can see the artwork of Joha Bissoni at johabissoni.com, J-O-H-A-B-I-S-O-N-E.com. And Joha, thanks for sharing your art with us this evening. And I hope we might get to see it in mid-Missouri before too long. Yes. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It was so great to talk to you. And that is it for another week. 
All the Speaking of the Arts episodes are available as podcasts, which you can hear at speakingofthearts.transistor.fm. And of course, you can also connect through the KOPN website at kopn.org. Before I sign off for another week, I want to remember tonight an artist in our community who passed away last week, Richard Dutton. Richard was a longtime member of the Columbia Art League and the Columbia Palette Plein Air Painting Group. It wasn't only his gorgeous watercolour landscapes and abstract works that drew people to his booth at Art in the Park each summer, but also his ready smile and the perpetual twinkle in his eye. Richard loved to travel, he loved to tell stories and laugh, and he was always kind and generous with his time and his talents. For those of us who knew him, it's hard to imagine that he won't physically be at our art events any longer, but I know too that his twinkle will remain like the smile of the Cheshire Cat. Thank you to my guests this evening, filmmaker Joseph Paleo, muralist and fine art watercolour artist Linda Hoover, and abstract painter Joha Bissoni. Thanks, as always, to guitarist Yasmin Williams, whose song, Restless Heart, opens and closes the show. You can hear more of her music on Spotify and on her website at yasminwilliamsmusic.com. Finally, thank you so much for listening. I'll be back next week with more peeks behind the arts curtain. Until then, stay arty, Missouri! Missouri!